This is the Rebel Author Podcast, where we talk about books, business, and occasionally bad words. Hello, Rebels, and welcome to episode 97 of the Rebel Author Podcast. We are just three weeks away from the big 100, and I am so excited. I still can't believe that we are almost there. But today I am talking to Nat Connors from Kindle Trends all about how to understand your book market. Now, a word of warning about this episode. It is one of the most jam-packed episodes full of information and tips and tricks um, that I think I've ever done. Nat has a gigantic brain and is super, super helpful at translating that into... um, tips and tricks. So I do recommend that you bring a notepad and pencil to this episode. Okie dokie, but first to last week's question, which was, do you enter competitions? Tom Fowler said, nope, there are too many dodgy and scammy ones out there. Even if you find a legit one, do readers really care you won an award they've probably never heard of? I think that's a really good point and I don't know how much it affects uh, readers. What I do know is that when I am looking for perhaps more literary books or I am looking for books of a certain standard or quality, I I definitely do look at to see whether or not somebody's won an award. Um, though the other part of me, when I'm like thinking of it from a writer's perspective, it's only about the ego. I definitely want to win an award. I like winning competitions. I'm competitive. Um, But whether or not that really makes a difference, I don't know. Obviously, the price money (laughs) would help. Uh, But whether or not it really makes a difference to readers, I don't really know. 99% of the time, I'm not looking for that. I'm just looking for the story and the blurb. So I think you have a good point. It probably doesn't make a difference. Um, Now, one other thing I did want to add in regards to the... um, scammers, the Alliance of Independent Authors does have a watchdog. And one of the things that the watchdog does is to check contests and ratings and, uh, sorry, contests and prizes. And it has a ratings, like a traffic light rating system. So if you go to selfpublishingadvice.org, then you can go to their ratings page and I will link that in the show notes as well. Next in, Edwin Downward said, I've never been able to take contests seriously. This case is no different in that your guest set the bar to getting a chance of success. So so high, a struggling author such as myself hasn't a chance, a chance short of the proverbial lightning strike. And I think, you know, that is fair enough. I do think there are ways and means of um, being in with a chance of winning a Kindle Storyteller. And it's definitely not all based on sales either. But I do think that if you were entering it and you really wanted to win it, you would have to be targeted and probably put some money into uh, trying to win and get reviews and things if you don't already have an established audience. Last, there was a comment on um, Instagram and Erica Drayton said, I'm entering my very first one this year, the Levar Burton Reads Writing Contest, and I'm wicked excited about it. I love that. Um, Some of my favourite competitions to enter are actually like flash fiction competitions. I think uh, 
the chances of winning are much higher, like short story competitions. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. I quite like entering them. I, you know, hey, <laughs> if you win, it massages your ego. and Everybody needs that sometimes. So yeah. Okay, so this week's question is, how do you learn about your genre? I'm interested in like the techniques and tools that you use to learn about your genre. And you can either comment on Instagram, you can comment in the Facebook group, and I will pick up your comments. I haven't been reading an awful lot over the last couple of weeks, uh, partly because I am extremely tired and um, normally reading will give me like energy, but I think I have burnt the candle solo. <laughs> that I have been able to do nothing other than vegetate in front of the TV. Uh, and we have been binge watching Scandal, which, oh my goodness me, I... Shonda Rhimes is a genius anyway, but this truly is exceptionally brilliant. I love it. Um, how we're on to Shonda Rhimes and Scandal, I was supposed to be giving a book recommendation, I don't know. But anyway, the point is, uh, this is from a couple of weeks ago, uh, and I am recommending... I hope I haven't recommended this one already. But anyway, it's Hanny and Issue's Guide to Fake Dating. Now, you see, I feel like I may have mentioned this on Next Level Authors podcast instead. But yeah, so this is the recommendation. Now, it's about two um, Bengali girls, uh, both bisexual, and uh, they basically end up fake dating for reasons. And um, it is a romance, ultimately. Uh, but it was so good. The representation was so good. Now, it does cover issues like um, toxic friendship, racism, bigotry, um, religion, so there are definitely uh, some uncomfortable moments, but I think actually it is a really good book to read, to see the problems and issues that so many um, marginalised people have to go through. And it's a romance and it's LGBT. And so like basically it just ticked like a whole bunch of boxes for me. And so I loved it. So I will pop affiliate links uh, in the show notes to uh, grab yourself a copy of that book. Okay, so personal update, I launched a book. <laughs> if you didn't realise, I did launch a book. I launched Eight Steps to Side Characters yesterday, actually, as I record this, because this is the 30th of July, it's Friday morning, actually it's Friday lunchtime now, I'm a little bit late recording this. And yeah, oh my goodness me, I am truly deeply exhausted. And I want to, I think I might do, actually, I'm not going to promise to do this, but I may do a mini episode uh, just looking at launch and sort of how it went and things like that. Um, because I'm too brain foggy to give you much of a personal update uh, today. Um, I am very, very tired. Now, I am excited because I am going to be on leave for two weeks. Um, I am more or less turning off the computer Next week, I will do. I will be doing the podcast. Um, I'm not going to stop doing the podcast. I haven't missed an episode uh, yet, and I don't intend to. So I will do the podcast, but I won't really have much by way of writing updates. Uh, we're going to do some fun activities next week. It's just me and the boy. Uh, Chloe is working. She she's had him for the first couple of weeks of the summer holidays. I'm having him for the second two weeks of the summer holidays. Um, yeah, and I'm going to read, and, my, and I'm going to rest, and I'm going to think, and I'm going to plan and I'm going to look at what I am doing for the rest of the year and um yeah so yeah I don't think I'm really providing you a very interesting update 
this week but um hopefully i will provide be able to provide you something a bit better um and more coherent next week i just don't i'm just so exhausted i just can't like word today i literally so i woke up on the morning of launch expecting to sit down at the computer go at it try and do some last minute promos and stuff and what actually happened was I laid on my living room floor for four straight hours and didn't move because I was basically in a coma and unable to human um so yeah like maybe that goes to explain some of the uh, tiredness but anyway uh, the guest today, Nat, uh, has a service for authors called Kindle Trends, and it is a newsletter. It's a paid newsletter, and it is packed full of information about Kindle markets. And um, so it is Amazon centric, uh, but it is really, truly deeply rammed. I have um, seen it. I am subscribed. And um, yeah, I can vouch for the fact that it contains a shit ton of information that is useful and helpful to um, you targeting and writing better blurbs and all of that good stuff. Now, um, Nat is very generously giving a discount. So the um, newsletter is normally $15 a month. And for that $15, you can determine the frequency of which you want information emailed to you. And you can choose the different uh, newsletters. So if you write romance, for example, or if you write, I don't know, fantasy and science fiction, you can subscribe to both of those for the $15. It's not $15 each category, it is $15 in total. Um, but if you use the code REBEL at the checkout, then you'll get $5 off of your monthly uh, Kindle Trends subscription, bringing it down to just 10 US dollars per month. And that is forever. Okay, it is forever. So you will only ever pay $10 per month. It is an absolute bargain. Um, and yeah, hopefully once you have listened to him talking, you will see that too. The rebel of the week this week is Amber Sauer. Sauer? I think that's how you say the surname. I hope I hope it is. I apologise if I have messed up uh, your surname. Uh, Amber says, A few years ago when a hurricane was projected to hit our state, my asshole C-level boss decided that I need to needed to stay overnight at work because we were a 24-7 operation. I told him that I didn't, uh, that didn't work for me and that I wouldn't put myself in danger. He insisted and told me I could be fired for insubordination. I said, sounds like today is my last day then. I collected my shit and left. Best decision ever. <laughs> I love this. I love the stories where you just say fuck you to the work and then like quit or leave. Like I absolutely love it because, oh, bosses can be such assholes. <laughs> um, yeah, so what an amazing story. Uh, I absolutely loved it. We are, as always, running low on rebel stories. So um, if you do have a rebel story, it can be anything, genuinely anything, big, small, or in between. I would love, love, love to be able to read out your stories uh, on the show. You can email me your rebel story to rebelauthorpodcast at gmail.com or you can Instagram me at Sasha Black Author. 
one new patron this week, Aaron Betts. Thank you so, so much for joining me. And of course, a gigantic thank you to all of my existing patrons. Like, I know I say this a lot, but it's because I genuinely fucking mean it. You guys make me feel like what I do is worthwhile. You make me want to continue. Um, and yeah, like, I just thank you so much because yeah, I feel like what I'm doing is having an impact and it means something and that it's helpful. So thank you so much. If you would like to support the show and get early access to all of the episodes, as well as bonus content like bloopers, there are video bloopers, there are audio bloopers, there are, I don't know, random things that you guys get as well, then you can, then you can from as little as $2 a month by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. All right, that's it from me. Let's get on with the episode. Hello, and welcome to the Rebel Author Podcast. Today, I am joined by Nat. Nat has been publishing genre fiction since 2016. He's a fiction writer, medical scientist, and a dance teacher. Kindle Trends, which Nat founded, started when he got fed up with trying to make sense of the Kindle store and wanted to compile a summary of the information important to his own writing. He shared that information with author friends and now he wants to share it with the wider author community as a whole. Hello and welcome. Yeah, what a good evening, Sasha. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for joining me. Would you, um, I know I read your bio, but would you like to tell everyone a little bit about you and like, and your journey? Like, how did you get to where you are today? Yeah. So like a lot of authors, I guess, I grew up reading a lot. I grew up on a remote farm uh, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, in a place called Taranaki, which is pretty rugged country, you know, way out in the boonies. Uh, So for most of my early life, it was just me and the farm animals and books, a lot of books. So I kind of always imagined that I would be a fiction writer and I ended up doing classics at university and then sort of drifted into science. And in the way that a lot of writers do, I sort of forgot about it. I think this is a pretty common experience for people who come to writing later in life, you know. And then a few years ago, quite by accident, I met a lovely bunch of people who were self-published authors. And I'd never heard of self-publishing as a a thing. And the idea of being a fiction writer, like I'd thought when I was a kid, sort of came back to me. So I did the same thing that I guess a lot of authors do in that situation. I read a lot of craft books and I talked to a lot of people and I started writing stories. A lot of those stories were pretty bad, but some of them weren't bad. And as I kept on reading craft books, I got very interested in the business. Um, And probably the the thing I, I was thinking about that's most significant for my journey is the help I've gotten from other people. I wouldn't have become the author I am without the support of all of my friends. And I, I think if I had been a, a hugely successful trade author and been handed a book deal right off the bat for my first book, which never happens to anyone, I would have found it impossible to write a decent book all on my own. Um, so I'm very glad that all of the people who have been around me as I've grown up as an author, they're the ones who have as much to do with what I've achieved as I do, you know? Yeah, that's one of the things that I love most about the indie community is the amazing yeah. friendship, the support, the just like group team ethos. We re- I think the indie community really feels like a team. And like you say, everybody is so willing to help, to answer questions, to provide support. And it and it's like 
it's a generational thing, you know, because the people who came first got help and support. So they then give help and support. I got help and support. So I give help and support, you know, that it, it's, yeah, it's just this wonderful reciprocal um, environment. So uh, yeah, when they say it takes a village to publish a book, they are not lying. <laughs> like it really does. Yeah. I, I don't know how I would write a book without the help and support of all of my friends. I've got no flipping idea how people <laughs> do it, you know, right? on their own with just them and an editor and so on. It's I know. Weird. Right. Yeah, like I would literally lose my fucking mind if I didn't have like people around me. Like I'm practically insane yeah. anyway. Like, but anyway. Mm. All right. So you also run an author service called Kindle Trends. So would you like to tell everyone a little bit about the service and what it provides? Yeah. So like you said, Sasha, um, I got frustrated when I was starting because I did a lot of reading. I did a lot of research and I spent a lot of time taking notes on books I'd read, what people liked and what I liked and reading reviews and all of that. But I found it very laborious to try and go through the store and find out what was relevant to me. So what I, I thought I really needed was a compiled summary of the information in a way that was uh, focused and got me straight to the content that was important for me and for my brand. But there wasn't any such thing. So eventually I got sufficiently teed off that I made it for myself. And that's what uh, Kindle Trends newsletters are. Kindle Trends is a weekly and monthly research newsletter for self-published authors. Every week and every month, subscribers get in-depth information summarizing every aspect of their genre, blurbs, covers, titles, trends, so on. Kindle Trends shows you what's popular in your genre right away, plus gives you specific links so you can drill into specific subgenres and specific tropes to find the books that are most relevant to your work. Basically, the idea is that you spend 100% of your research time on productive work and none of it on repetitive copying and pasting. Yeah, I think um, the market research is one of these really painful aspects for authors because yeah. it does take time. <laughs> and you can't really outsource it like there's a little bit of outsourcing that you can do in terms of like collecting a few names and things but ultimately um you know we are the ones controlling our advertising spend we are the ones yeah. controlling our adverts we are the ones you know if you want to have a hope of selling then you need to do that Venn diagram of you know not necessarily just purely writing to market but writing to market and, in, you know, matching that with the bits of your genre or tropes that you enjoy so that you get kind of that crossover between providing something the market exactly. wants and is going to sell. But, you know, that takes time. You have to, you know, like you said, read books. You have to understand um, all of those different facets that you're including. So, yeah. Um, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, what a fantastic service. Yeah, just picking up on that, the thing that strikes me the most is that nothing can replace your intuition and your knowledge of your brand and your creative process. No computer, no data visualization will be able to take that part away. So what I'm trying to do with Kindle Trends is make it so you spend 100% of the time using your intuition and doing the things that only you can do, thinking about what you like to write, seeing what's in the market and making the connections between different uh, subgenres or different story elements that you need a writer's intuition and a writer's experience to do. That's one of the things I guess I, I make really clear to people. Computers can do some work for us, 
but really what they're best at is doing the donkey work, the repetitive mm. stuff. So we can use our own intuition and our own creativity as much of the time as possible. Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, that donkey work will eliminate some of the hard slog of trying to find the books that you should be reading yep. in your genre. And, yep. you know, um, yes, exactly. Yeah, you know, and that's sometimes, I mean, sometimes it's nice to peruse in a bookstore, but that's not going to give you the indie side, you know, because most indies aren't in bookstores and stuff. So, yeah. Um, all right. So we're going to talk yeah. about market research and, you know, in the in the vein of also including what Kindle trends can do for you. So I know like lots of writers who essentially stop reading books when they're writing um, or a lot of writers who can't even tell you who their competitor authors are um so just for listeners who might not know what a competitor author is by that i don't mean somebody you are literally competing against i mean um who is in your sub niche so if you write teen and young adult fantasy um okay that's fine but that's a very broad genre so you know let's say you write teen and young adult um steampunk romance well okay who are the 10 best selling uh teen and young adult fantasy steampunk romance authors <laughs> you know we're talking about this level of granularity and lots and lots and lots of writers that I know cannot tell me uh that the 10 other authors doing that or you know a handful of authors who are also doing that um is that a problem why should we bother to research our market anyway yeah good good question um the obvious answer is that the better we understand our readers expectations the more we'll sell the more money we'll make. And that's important for most people. There's a non-obvious answer, which I'll get to in a sec. Um, most people would like some degree of commercial success, even if it's only to allow them the freedom to carry on creating what they want to create. But there's another more subtle reason, I think, and it concerns us, uh, ourselves. As creatives, I think we get inspiration from many different sources, and we don't exist in a creative vacuum. We create stories based on our own history, of course, our own context, but also based on all the other things we see and do, music, conversations, news, football games, watching the sunset, all of those things. And so we're inspired also by what readers enjoy. If you are lucky enough to have readers contact you personally and tell you about parts of your books or your stories that really resonate with them, that's an incredible motivating factor. I'm, I'm sure you've had that happen, Sasha. And so what I'm saying is that uh, the things that resonates with readers resonate with readers, sorry, changes over time and space. And the more that we understand about what readers are looking for, the more we can incorporate that into our own creative process and use it as fuel for our own inspiration. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And a really good example of that is um, in the like horror and thriller sphere. So if you look at movies, for example, but even in books as well, there's a cyclical change between psychological fear and physiological fear. So, you know, back in and I'm probably going to get the decade wrong, but like I feel like it was the 90s. <laughs> It might have been the noughties, but um, there were, you know, like a, a string of films like Saw, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Halloween, um, Scream, and they were, they were all gore films. But, um, you know, in, in, I feel like it was the 2010s, maybe, um, we had a shift and um, 
we had a lot of psychological stuff. So we had psychological thrillers like uh, Gillian Flynn and Gone Girl and, and you know, looking more at like psychological fear rather than, um, and I, I've got a, a, a listener and a very dear friend, Icy, who's probably going to correct me uh, because I've got all the dates wrong and, and, and massacred the, the film industry. But hopefully, you know, it's that you can understand like the gist of, um, yeah, mm. what I'm saying. But that's an, an example of it, just how, uh, you know, genres and tastes and things that are in fashion do change and, and why it's so important that we um do understand that so um yeah yeah I mean I, I think at that time and I'm not a um a film buff but I think at that time also there was a kind of second generation j-horror thing going on where um people who filmmakers who grew up watching Ringu and The Grudge and so on they were inspired by those things so there was a a new wave of uh, Western psychological horror, which was very much in the style of previous Japanese psychological horror. You know, mm. um, it's fascinating to look at those trends over a long period of time. You're absolutely right. It is the one so, that blew I mean, my mind. Sorry, but one other one, just to just to riff off that. The the one other one that blew my mind was the Blair Witch Project because there were like no <laughs> bat, no yeah, no yeah, uh, monsters yeah, in it at all. It was all camera yeah. angles and heavy breathing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. It reminds me. I don't want to get too far off the topic, but it reminds me of one of my old favourites, Sapphire and Steel, which is a UK um, uh, thriller series from the seventies. All, um, as you say, camera angles and um, theremin and little patches of light, and absolutely terrifying. Just <laughs> really, really, really scary. Do watch it, but don't watch it late at night, listeners. So. Um, on the other thing I wanted to pick up on about something else you'd said earlier was about writing to market and writing to trend. Um, people talk about those things a lot, but in my view, um, those are not the only reason to do research. Uh, we study trends, not just to follow them or to copy them, but rather for me to understand the essential story elements they represent and to figure out how to blend those elements into our own style. I was listening to your discussion with David Gochran a while ago, and he talked about meeting the market halfway. He says, you know, you've got to meet the market halfway. Um, and that's a really good way of putting it. But I was thinking about this, and I, I feel that good research is what allows you to have your cake and eat it, so to speak. That is, you can do both. You can understand reader expectations and then also develop them in a way which is creatively fulfilling for you. So it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game where you either write what the market wants or you write something which is creatively fulfilling. If you do good research and you put your time in, then you can do both at the same time. Yeah, I, I completely agree. And some of that is around finding your your voice as well, I think. So, you know, uh, in nonfiction writing craft books, there is an expectation that, you know, you use examples, that you deconstruct things and explain and give tools and tips and methods. But, you know, a lot of nonfiction craft books are stuffy, I want to say. <laughs> but, you know, they're very formal. And, you know, I know that. And... I met the market halfway by inserting a lot of dick jokes and sarcasm. <laughs> so, um, you know, yeah, that's a that's an example of that. Okay, so like we know now that market research is important, um, but what are the different things that we need to research for our books and for our business? How should we break down the research to make it easier on ourselves? 
Yeah, sure. So a lot of people find the idea of research for self-publishing quite intimidating because they see it as a kind of a unitary whole. There's five million odd books in the Kindle store and there are more being published every month in the tens of thousands and stuff. And so it is actually quite uh, um, intimidating to go there and look at them and go, ah, you know. So what I will talk about is a way of working out a research approach that works for each individual. There's no one right way to study any genre or any type of books. Instead, what's right for each person depends on their specific situation, the kind of books they want to write themselves, the amount of time they have, the amount of money they have, all of those kinds of things. But I start at a very basic level by dividing research up into four parts. And those four parts are content, blurbs, covers, and mechanics. If you like, you can sort of think of them as being four different layers uh, from innermost, which is content, all the way out. And I start when I'm talking about research, I start from the innermost layer and work to the outermost layers. I do it like this because I think it's helpful to think of each layer as being related to the others. And market research for me is always about understanding the relationships between each of those layers. The way that um, the, the way that I often put it is that covers on the outside make a promise to the reader, a promise usually about genre. That promise is then developed in the blurb and it's fleshed out and you're telling the reader how they're going to get this genre fiction. And then it's delivered in the story itself, the content. So effective genre research is about understanding each of these four layers and how they're related. I love that. I've never heard, um, I suppose an analogy, I think is the right word, um, looking at market research like that. And, and in, I suppose, like I imagined it as you were talking, I imagined it like in literally in circles, like concentric circles. Yeah. Um, yeah so that was, yeah, I love that. I've, I've never thought about it like that. Um, I find that I actually find that really helpful uh, because I'm quite a visual person. So yeah, that is an awesome yeah. Anal yeah. analogy. Good. I, I, so we can take that, we can take that kind of analogy and trace something like an individual trope or a story element. I use the term story element because sometimes it's what people call a trope and sometimes it's some other kind of element like a theme or whatever, but we can trace it from the cover all the way through the blurb into the story itself and then kind of back out. So uh, going back to what I was saying before about research and how um, good research lets you understand reader expectations and unpack tropes, uh, a really good example, I think, is vampires. I was talking to a friend the other day, and they pointed out that vampire stories aren't really about being dead. They aren't really about uh, drinking blood or anything like that. Instead, vampires is a label we attach to a package of particular feelings, particular uh, elements in a story. In a horror context, it might be uh, damnation and a sense of a loss of humanity, you know? But in a romance story about vampires, the vampire element represents eternal love and devotion and a sense of kind of complete obsession with someone. So uh, vampire stories aren't really about vampiring. Instead, that is a shorthand for a package of emotions and experiences from the, for the reader. And through research and this idea of different layers, we can uncover what they are and maybe incorporate them into our stories even if we're not writing about vampires. Do you know what mm. I mean? Oh, completely. And I, I love that same, uh, one, I love vampire stories, but also too, I love that because um, so much of story is about the emotion. Um, and, and, and in a way, 
emotion is your branding um, and knowing what emotion you want your readers to feel and to go away with. And, you know, like when you write nonfiction, people talk about the problem that you're solving for them. Like that is, that is what you need to research in, in the market. You need to see how other people are solving problems and how they're talking about how they do that. When you when it comes to fiction, that's not, you're not solving a problem other than an entertainment, but that's not really a problem to solve. So the way that you brand and the way that you package is via emotion and, and that emotional journey and feeling that, um, you give to readers but I don't think I've ever heard it quite as succinctly put as that I think that is brilliant and um I am never going to look at vampire stories in the same way um I was just gonna say I want to go and geek out now and like think about <laughs> all of the other like genres and things that I like in the tropes that, to see what the uh the emotional yeah. yeah and unpacking them so another really good example that will resonate with uh romance uh readers and romance authors who are listening is mo mountain man romances so mountain man is quite a popular uh romance trope at the moment now do you think sasha that the draw in a mountain man romance is the mountain i don't even no. know what mountain man is romance well well <laughs> so i couldn't um, possibly so, tell you, know, you. <laughs> it's the, the, the bloke lives on the side of a hill right it's really important he's got one leg shorter than the other um no actually the mountain man trope in romance is about things like a sense of isolation it's a, a feeling of disconnection from society maybe it represents a specific type of emotional wound that the mmc has you know that kind of thing um so we talk about mountain man romances as being this thing but it's not about the mountain um my, I, I joke that my stories about flat ground man never took off. Um, and that's because flat ground man doesn't have the same sense of disconnection from society because he's got good public transport or whatever. So you weren't kidding when you said mountain man romance is literally about a man who lives on a mountain. I, I, I was being a little sarcastic. What, what yeah. I mean is um, uh, the, the mountain, just like vampire stories aren't about being dead, um, mountain man stories aren't about living on the side of a hill. Um, uh, in the, by the same token, um, they, that label represents a package of feelings and a package of emotions experienced by the reader. And research, to go back to the point, research is the tool that allows us to unpack that package, understand what's really inside, and most importantly, figure out how to fold those elements into our own style and into our own stories. And that's the important part for me is how do we take these things that are in the market fold them into what we do and what we want to do one of the questions that i get asked more than any other question and i want to go back to what you were saying about like the different um sections of research but we'll do that in a second mm -hmm. um yeah one of the questions i get asked most often is how do i find uh, or how do I find out where my readers are? How do I research where to find readers and therefore where to target my uh, marketing efforts? And of course, you know, like some of this is about genre, but do you have any like tips or advice on this more broadly? Mm, that's a, yeah, that is a good question. Um, Chris Fox in his excellent Right to Market series, uh, he says, go where the readers are. And I very much agree with that. So for me, that means communities of people who are interested in reading a particular genre, but also people who are interested in the things that are represented in that genre. So if you're writing science fiction, 
don't just go to groups for science fiction readers. Instead, think about what those readers are likely to be into. For science fiction, that might be people who are into Trek uh, or the Star Wars Expanded Universe. Um, if you're writing hard sci-fi, you might go to a TV discussion board for something like The Expanse, like a, a popular hard sci-fi show. So in each case, think like a marketer and say, what else are my readers possibly into? Go to the places where people are talking about those things to get ideas and to get uh, information about what's popular. I would qualify that, though, by stressing that when you do that, I think you're there to learn and ask questions about what readers enjoy. You're not there to actually market directly. Um, a lot of communities have quite strict rules about marketing and self-promotion. And in general, I think that's a very good thing. Uh, again, Chris Fox makes a great point when he talks about acting with integrity. And I think that's a really good advice because that's also how you find dedicated fans in those spaces by asking questions and finding out what people are into. And it's fun, you know, Sasha, like I'm sure you've done this. Um, it's talking to people who really love something um, and learning why they love it. So you can try and incorporate some of that love into your books is great fun. Does that help? It does. Yes. Thank you. Okay. So let's go back and dive into the different aspects um, that you mentioned. So tell me more about how you can research um, content. Like what should you look for? How do you like look for it? And what should you take note of? Yeah. So um, remember, we talk about these four aspects, content, blurbs, covers, and genre mechanics. I start from the inside, from the content, which is in the reverse order from the way that readers experience stuff. Like you typically, you see the cover of a book and then you see the blurb and then you decide to buy it and then you read the content. But I start from the inside to go out, back to front, if you like, because I think that's how best to understand the relationships between them. So understanding content is maybe the most fundamental thing. That sounds kind of like a statement of the obvious, but... It's the thing that the reader is ultimately investing in, investing their time, investing their money. And it's the thing that will get them coming back and turn them into a devoted fan of your work. Uh, if you think about your own favorite writers and the emotions that you feel when you pick up a new book by them, you're holding it and everything, those are the emotions that you want to create in a reader. And those emotions come to me largely from your content. So to start understanding genre content, you need to read a lot of books. Uh, mm -hmm. Go to the store store of your choice, any store, and choose a few books that you think are going to be relevant to your own work. Don't worry too much about getting this right first time because you'll be doing a heck of a lot of it. And what matters is being mindful as you go along. All books have something you can learn from them as long as you're reading mindfully and making a lot of notes. So in a Kindle Turns newsletter, I annotate each book based on the story elements, the topics, the tropes, and so on. So you can go straight to a specific type of book. If someone is uh, wanting to write a, a friends to lovers romance, then you can go straight to that type of book, you know? So when I'm reading uh, these books, I work through paying attention to story and style and making notes about the story elements which stand out to me. The key thing here is what stands out for me as a reader, because later on, I'm gonna go and read reviews and I'm going to say, what stood out for other people? How is that similar? How is it different? Then I'm going to try and find the things that uh, everyone makes a point of talking about. What are the things that I found was striking about this book? And also, what are the things that everyone else found was striking about this book? Uh, reading craft books and looking, learning about different kinds of beat sheets and stuff is really important. 
because um, that can give you a framework within which to identify stuff. No uh, craft book and no beat sheet tells you absolutely everything because the way that you understand a story is very much a matter of your own context as well, but they're all valuable, you know? Mm -hmm. So that that's the, the first part. And then finally, I go through, once I've done this for say three or four books in a genre, I look for common features because what I'm trying to do there is look at the common features across the entire genre. I figure if I've got three to five popular books in a genre, then out of that, I should get some common features, which are the things that readers are looking for in terms of content. Oh, you are making my brain whir this evening. I'm like trying to, cause I, that's one of my favorite things is to like yep. read. Uh, well, <laughs> I read a lot of books, mm. but um, one of my favorite things is to deconstruct. Um, and uh, yeah, you're making me think about deconstruction in a way that I haven't been thinking about deconstruction. Um, I have spent because I wanted to learn more about sentence level stuff, I have spent a long time yeah. deconstructing um, at the sentence level. But um, yeah, I think there is, you know, a lot to be said about coming back out. So yeah, I reckon that's what I'm going to spend my next 10 books doing. Um, yeah. The other thing that just to finish off on that, Sasha, the thing that I would really recommend strongly with people is make sure that you make notes as you are reading at this sort of high level, because it's very easy, I find, for my impressions of the book to kind of just mush together because I'm enjoying the book, like I like reading books, right? Um, but instead, what I want to do here is to try and pick out specific things and then put my five sheets of paper together and go, hold on, it turns out that this particular element is actually mentioned in four of these books and it's kind of hinted at in the other one, you know? Mm -hmm. So for me, the secret to mindful reading is making a hell of a lot of notes. Yeah, no, I do the same. I have sticky tabs and I... Um, I it... <laughs> I'm such a hypocrite, but I don't bend book spines, uh, but I will do sacrilegious acts and write inside <laughs> of a book, which is just the most hypocritical thing ever. Like, I know, right? But I do. I like write notes in, in the edges of books um, uh, as I'm reading. And then, yeah, I know. And I have like hundreds <laughs> of sticky tabs like on my uh, oh. table and things. Um, okay, same question, yeah. but looking at blurbs. Yeah, okay. So uh, to, to repeat our initial research idea from the outside in, um, covers make a promise to the reader, blurbs develop that promise, content delivers on the promise. Blurbs are usually the last thing in the Kindle store anyway that a reader sees before they make a buying decision. They're the last thing before someone clicks on the book and says, okay, I'm going to buy it. Or even if it's free, they're still buying it in the sense that they're giving up their time. Blurbs are very challenging to do well at, but they're also the thing at which you can improve the most quickly and the most cheaply. There's lots of great books about blurb writing, and I'd encourage listeners to read some of them, but this is the way that I do it. The first thing I do is I find a small number of relevant blurbs. Um, I can go through the store and look for particular keywords or maybe for particular authors. If I've worked out who my comparable authors are, like you were saying, Sasha, uh, using Kindle Trends, I can filter immediately for specific words or specific tropes. So if I want to know what uh, books have been published this week or this month about women, women sleuths, then I can go straight to the women sleuth books and just focus on those blurbs. So I've got a small number of blurbs, maybe three, four, something like that. Then. I try to rewrite the blurb 
for my own book in the style of each of those blurbs. I'm not copying the events. Instead, I'm trying to copy the style explicitly. If it starts with a hooky tagline and then the first paragraph is about one character and then the second paragraph is about another character, then I try and do that. I don't try to do this perfectly um, because what I'm trying to do is to get a feeling for how I could take three different approaches to my blurb. Probably what's going to happen is two of them are terrible and one of them is kind of merely bad uh, at this stage, but that's okay. I, I persist with them. Then I go back to the notes that I made on content because we talked about content um, in the last question and I compare the blurbs for the books that I read with the story elements that I identified. I think that in a good blurb, every sentence is doing something. Every sentence is lifting. Uh, it's showing something about the story elements. I also look at reviews at this point and specifically for story elements that are emphasized by readers because those are ones that I might want to target in the blurb. If a reader says, I like a particular thing or um, this really stayed with me, that's something that potentially I want to make a point of incorporating in my blurb one way or another. Does that make sense? It does. So, okay. So then I go back to my three different versions of my blurb, probably two crappy ones and one bad one, and I edit them. My goal here is to use that learning about the relationship between content and blurbs to make uh, each sentence in my blurbs do something. Specifically, I'm trying to make it say something about a story element, an emotion, or a key event that I think people are going to want to know about, or any of those kinds of things. This can be quite difficult and quite frustrating because it feels like I've just given myself three times as much work. Um, I'm not just writing one blurb, I'm writing three blurbs, uh, and two of them are crap. What's going on? Um, but there is a reason for this, and the reason is that uh, I am going to then present these three blurbs to other people. Um, this might be writer colleagues, or it might be posting them in a reader's group online. I like to present three different versions and get people to rank them for me in order of preference. Because what I'm trying to get them to do is to show me what elements of which blurbs resonate most strongly with them. I find if I ask people just, do you like this blurb or not, then they will say yes or no, and I won't learn as much. But if I have three different blurbs about the same story, then they can say, well, I like this bit, and uh, I don't know, I, this doesn't make any sense, you should use that. So I find it's much quicker for me to get to a good blurb, one that I'm happy with, if I have this approach where I get three different versions and rank them. The last thing I want to mention here is uh, uh, Nicholas Eric's awesome work. You talked to Nicholas, I think, a while ago, back in episode 72 or something. He has a, a brilliant idea of hand copying blurbs, uh, writing them out longhand, um, which is great because it really, if you're a slow writer like me, it really pushes you to slow down and think about every single word. It is quite painful, but um, I find that I've learned a lot by doing that. Do you ever, because um, obviously you are looking at a lot of verbs, uh, verbs blurbs and processing blurbs in uh, Kindle Trends, do you ever see a difference in like trad blurbs to indie blurbs? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's a good question. So again, in Kindle Trends, um, you can filter by trad or non-trad. Those distinctions are a little subjective um, because we know there are other publishing houses apart from the big five and so on. But depending on the genre, there will there can be quite a clear distinction 
by type of blurb. For instance, historical romance is a, a classic for this. You can spot a trad published historical romance from quite a distance, both through the blurb and through the uh, cover. Um, in other stories, perhaps a, like a, a contemporary mystery or a domestic suspense, there's maybe less difference. So you know, I think the answer to your question is yes, in some circumstances. And that might be that you, you might want to, if you're an indie writer, you might want to go very much an indie route, or you might want to do a sort of half and half. There's mm. no right or wrong here. It's always a matter of figuring out what you're doing and why you're doing it. Interesting. Okay, so the next one was covers, I think. Was it covers? Yeah, so yep. talk to me about covers and research for covers. Okay, dokie. So covers are usually the first thing that readers see of your book in an ad or a newspaper or, or whatever. And like I was saying before, covers make a specific set of promises to readers. They tell readers about genre and subgenre, but they're also important in author branding because they allow authors to identify your books in a lineup and they contribute strongly to that sense of anticipation we were talking about earlier. I've got a great uh, example here and it is the excellent craft books um, written by the popular writer Sasha Black which have a very strong excellent branding with light backgrounds and a primary color sans serif text and the characteristic um, motif of the uh, the tail with the, the pen nib and stuff like that. This is awesome branding and I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you because you can identify a Sasha Black craft book from a freaking mile away and that's the, the goal, right? And the, the motif is a very clever one. I'm probably not telling you anything you don't already know, but <laughs> because it's very flexible and also, uh, listeners, because it's got semantic content. What I mean by that is um, the, the pen nib symbolizes writing and the, um, the, the tail symbolizes villainy. Because you're most famous for villainy, um, it's, if you don't mind me saying so, <laughs> um, it's an excellent way to identify your book from quite a, a distance so uh, when I'm looking at covers in a genre those are the kinds of elements I am looking for I can scan the top 100 that's sort of relevant to me and I try and look out to start with the different groups of cover styles I think non-fiction craft books are actually very very varied they're much more individual to people whereas uh, fiction in uh, let's say science fiction or epic fantasy they can be much more grouped into maybe two or three different styles. Mm. You don't have to stick to one of those styles, but it's always good to understand why they are the way they are and what people are doing with each individual element. So again, uh, this is about looking at every element on a cover, just like we looked at every sentence in a blurb and saying, what message is this element sending to readers? This color tone, um, this uh, shade, the typography, why is it like this rather than like that? Why is the author name at the top versus having it at the bottom? In a good cover, none of those things are by accident. They're mm. all there for a reason. If you've got people, how many people have you got? Are they just heads or are they sort of full profiles? If you've got objects, what are the objects there for? So I get a bunch of covers and look at these things, make notes, and then I go back to the blurbs for those books and try and find the links. So I look for the specific elements linked to keywords or phrases that reference the cover. For instance, if I see a book that's got um, a young woman, she's got long hair, uh, there's a blue or green background, and she's carrying a big 
rough sword, probably a katana, and she's wearing leather pants. I think, hmm, this is an urban fantasy book. I I, I um, was going to say that before you even said it. <laughs> see, I was see? like, the so, more, so when you started and you were like, oh, there's a young girl with long hair, I was like, well, this is either young adult or it's fantasy. <laughs> and then you were like, she's holding a sword. Mm, okay, we're getting closer. It could be epic fantasy. It could be, you know, like, and then you were like, uh, the leather pants. It, I was like, yeah, katana. that's urban fantasy. <laughs> it's, it's urban fantasy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay. So this is an, a good example. You can tell it from a mile away. Like if I just described the thing. So, um, that's okay but different urban fantasy books will have other elements in them so what i will do is i'll look at a few of these young ladies carrying their um tableware and i will say okay how are they different based on the blurb because mm. each of them will have subtly different elements maybe it's series or author branding uh maybe it's other figures in the background or something like that so we've got these basic elements for the genre but then i'm looking at the other elements because those are the ones which are probably picked up in the blurb so again to to harp on about the point it's all about looking for the elements which are traceable from cover to blurb through to content i think this is so deeply fascinating and like I definitely haven't had a podcast episode go into this much detail looking at it but what I think is so interesting is like that um I'm gonna say gestaltism so I talk about gestaltism a lot in my books but it's essentially the the psychological concept that the whole is more than the sum of its parts and um I think that's what you're talking about here it's like the gestaltism of marketing and like as you were talking and you know you mentioned my books and I have like covers up on my wall above my computer so I was looking off at my covers and I was like I have done it subconsciously but definitely intentionally. Um, and I love that you picked up the semantics um, like of the tail, the devil tail and the pen nib, um, but like linking it to the blurb, even in, um, even in nonfiction, you know, I say in my blurb, if you like dark humor and sarcasm, you know, and examples, this is the book for you, you know, so I'm connecting those elements. And, and I suppose having that devil's tale is the first indication to a reader that this might not be your bog standard type of nonfiction craft book. And then again, even like, I know the bulk of the text is a, is a very regular type font, but the font that I use for the subtitles is not, it's a bit unusual. It's a bit graffiti. Um, you know, so even there is like a subtle, indication and then that like you said that links to um the blurb and the fact that I outright say <laughs> this mm. is this is dark humor or or you know sarcasm and that yep. stuff but yeah I've never thought about how that traces through and I, I just think this is fascinating yeah repeated elements into your in all the way through to your content you know but you mm. can see I hope why I do it back to front why I start in fiction anyway I start with the content and I note down in the content what are the things that are the most striking for me what are the things that really jump out and smack me in the face then I go back to the blurb and see if I can trace those things into the blurb then I go to the cover and see if I can trace them into the cover if you see what I mean once I've done this process a few times I get a lot uh, a much better idea 
of the range of different things that can go on in a genre. And going back to the thing with the covers also, my goal here is to be in a position where I understand what each element on a cover is telling the reader because I wanna make my own cover, right? I wanna pick out a few covers that are really relevant to me, send them to my cover designer and also include details about the kind of elements I'm looking for and why. So if I can give my designer uh, a, a detailed breakdown, not just I want X, like I want floating Manchester on the cover and a big wolf in the darkness. The cover, the designer will be like, hmm, are you writing a shifter romance? Okay, <laughs> but I'm not just going to say that. I'm going to say the reason why I want these things or I think this is a good approach is because I am trying to achieve X, Y, and Z, and here's my blurb. Mm -hmm. That makes it a heck of a lot easier for the cover designer to, to understand where I'm coming from and to maybe say, well, okay, that's not going to work, but uh, to achieve your goals, now I understand them. Let's try this, you know? So the more detailed information we have about this linking process, the better we can guide other people to help us. Okay. So the last um, section is mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. Talk to me so, about mechanics. Okay. So this is a, a slightly weird term, genre mechanics. And I made it up because it's everything else about your genre, which isn't specifically your book. It isn't your blurb, your cover, your content. It's a sprinkling of different things, but I put it here because I think your best place to understand it uh, when you have a picture of content blurbs and covers. So for example, uh, release frequency is a very important thing. Uh, if you're in a genre which has a lot of churn, it turns over really quickly, then you may need to match that or to get close to it. If you can't do that because you're not as fast a writer, I'm not a fast writer, um, then it doesn't mean I can't be in that genre, but it does mean that I need to alter my expectations, maybe change my branding. In some genres, you will often find that they're quite biphasic. When you plot uh, how frequently books are, um, are released, you'll see that in, in many uh, popular contemporary genres, there's a tranche of books which are very quickly turning over, and then there's another set of books which are not turning over quite so quickly. And neither of these is right or wrong. They both please readers. They both make money. Um, but understanding which one you want to be a part of is very important. And that depends on your uh, writing speed and the amount of time you have to devote to writing and all of that kind of thing. So that's an example of a genre mechanic that I think you need to understand. Another one is trad versus indie. Trad books, as we were saying before, can have different branding. Um, versus indie books. So if you're in a genre which is primarily trad, then you probably need to know that. That doesn't mean that you can't be in that genre, but it does mean that you want to see the differences between trad and indie in that genre. Uh, another example of genre mechanics is standalone stand versus series. Are the books in your genre almost entirely in series, because some genres are like that, or are they standalone? Uh, another example is length. Um, it helps to know whether your book is comparable in length to others in your genre. Again, you don't have to do the same thing, but depending on your price point, it's important to be aware of reader expectations. If there is an expectation, for instance, in your genre that a $5.99 book is going to be 80,000 words or thereabouts, then if your $5.99 book is only 40,000 words, you might get some uh, frustration from readers. They might not enjoy it as much as they would otherwise. 
Uh, and the, the last one I was just thinking of then was pricing as well. So I will look at books in different price ranges within a genre to see what makes them different. It's not always just how long they are. Uh, books aren't like linen. You don't just measure them by the word. It's often whether they're in a series or not, or the specific story elements they contain, or trad versus indie, or whatever. So in principle, these things, these uh, genre mechanics, are all separate from cover and blurb and content, because you could, in principle, write a great story with a, a kick-ass cover and a really great blurb, but if it's not priced in alignment with the genre, or if it's a standalone where people are looking for series or whatever, it might not do as well as it would otherwise do. So the point of all of this is that it's good to be able to understand how you want your book to fit next to other books in your genre. Is it longer or shorter, faster paced or slower, higher priced or lower, series or standalone? All of those decisions, it's good to be able to make them mindfully, no matter what you do, because you can also make fine tuning. You can uh, correct your course as you go along. Another really awesome thing that David Cochran said was he tells people not to think about one book. He tells them to think about a series of books uh, about the, the journey. That's great advice. Um, and I would add to that, that on that journey, good research helps you correct your course. So you're steering kind of more or less in the direction you want to go. Fantastic. I hope that helps. It does indeed. Thank you. All right. So at the top of the show, we mentioned um, your author service, Kindle uh, Trends. Um, and of course, you've given lots of tips and tricks uh, for authors to go away and uh, look at uh, their markets in a different way. But of course, uh, Kindle Trends can take some of the pain away. So do you want to just remind readers and uh, readers? <laughs> This is because this is what we've been talking about. Do you want to remind <laughs> listeners um, about how Kindle Trends can help and make a lot of this easier for them? Yeah, thank you. So I think there's two ways that uh, Kindle Trends newsletters can um, make your research time more efficient. The first one is that whatever research time you've got, you can use it usefully. If you've got 30 seconds in the morning, you can just read the first section of your genre newsletter, and that gives you a summary of the week or the month. It's like the, um, uh, the first page of the newspaper, and it's deliberately like that. It'll tell you about the new books. It'll tell you about what's, what tropes are trending up or down. It'll give you links so you can go straight to those things. You see that uh, aliens are up five this week. So you go oh, and you look at the alien books because maybe that's of interest to you. It tells you about trad versus indie, KU versus wide, series versus standalone, all of those kinds of things in one or two paragraphs. If you've got more time, then you can dig into each of those things that are really relevant to you. You can filter for uh, the books that are enemies to lovers books, and you can pull out just the blurbs for them. So one of the things that I suggest to subscribers a lot is this is a, a quick way to beef up your blurb skills. Every week, just grab the blurbs for the books with the same tags as yours, the ones you're writing, and then read them. And maybe like Nicholas Eric says, just copy them out longhand. That's um, a little bit like doing lines if you were naughty at school, but uh, two, two pages of that every week or so and it really improves your blurb skills and it's an easy thing to do while you're drinking your coffee or on the treadmill or, or whatever so that's the first thing that kindle trends can do i think um the second thing is that kindle trends helps you go straight to the content that's really relevant for you and helps you make decisions so if i'm thinking about writing a space opera and i've decided i want to be wide and i want to be priced above 4.99 
then I can say, okay, I'm going to go to the science fiction newsletter. I'm going to look at all of the books tagged space opera, and I'm going to choose the wide ones, and I'm going to look at 4.99 and above, and I'll see all of my comps. I'll see all of my comparable authors immediately there, their covers and blurbs and so on. That means, going back to what we were saying before, that you can spend all of your time doing the stuff that only you can do, rather than the donkey work of trying to pull them out of the store and worrying that you've missed them and all of that kind of stuff. I think this is really important because it lets us ask questions that inform the decisions we make. Whatever I put in Kindle Trends, I care a lot about it being actionable. Uh, it, there isn't any fluff in there. It's all stuff that is useful for somebody. The other thing I would want to stress is that you get a month free. So the first month is completely free and you can cancel every time, uh, any time you want. There's no tiers, there's no upselling, um, no premium this or that. I'm not really a marketer, Sasha. I'm kind of much more of a writer. Um, the last thing I would mention is that uh, I've got a discount code, uh, which maybe we could put in the show notes if that's okay. And if you use the code REBEL, normally Kindle Trends is 15 US a month. Um, but if you use the discount code REBEL, uh, it will take $5 off and it will bring the price down to a measly $10 a month. And that's in perpetuity. It's not for a month or two months, it's forever. So if you use the discount code REBEL, then you will get a significant discount for the rest of your life. And I also, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to explain that, um, because I didn't realize this when I was going through this, that um, you're not paying $10 per genre so if you are a, a writer of science fiction and you write gay romance as well and you would like to go into um say cozy mystery uh you aren't going to pay 30 bucks for each of those genres you're going to pay 10 bucks and you will get all of those um newsletters every week or every month um depending on 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 what you choose so it is actually a massive fucking bargain and you are entirely underpriced just to let you know. Yeah, it's deliberate. It's deliberate. <laughs> yeah. No, this but, is, yeah, look, yeah. One, one price and you get everything now and forever. Um, like I say, I'm a writer and I want to deliver something which is helpful for working writers at an affordable rate. Uh, my goal here is that this has to pay for itself every single month month after month after month. So it needs to save you two hours of your time every month at minimum wage. Um, and if it doesn't save you two hours of your time every month at minimum wage, I'll just give you back your money. That's it. Um, it I am it not will definitely save. It, yeah, it will definitely I mean, save people two hours at least of their exactly, time. Right. That's that's why I'm. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it, also, this is a solo operation. If you give me money, it goes to buy my groceries. That's really as far as it goes. Right. I'll send you a picture of the groceries. <laughs> Just post them on Instagram. That's what everyone else does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I look, I need advice from you on that because that's not my bag. But yeah. All right. Well, this is the Rebel Author Podcast. Tell everyone about a time you unleashed your inner rebel. Well, with I spent some time thinking about this and uh, with the theme firmly uh, on unleashed, I was a long time ago uh, when I was uh, studying, uh, I was asked to play Santa Claus in the uh, departmental Christmas party. 
And this, uh, we had a lovely sort of family um, atmosphere in our department. So everyone would get together and they'd bring the kids and everything. We have a barbecue. It's very wholesome, very wholesome. And so I was asked to play Santa Claus. And I said, sure, yeah, I can do that. And jolly and everything. Um, and on the day, I discovered that being Santa Claus was actually quite a stressful job for anyone out there who has played Santa. It's actually, there's a lot of expectations on you if you're playing the role of Santa. Uh, so I was a bit nervous and we had a costume and everything. So I got uh, uh, changed and came out and all the kids were there and I went, ho, 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 as, as you do. Uh, and I sat down on a chair as Santa does and all the kids sat around me and I was doling out presents, uh, asking them their names and, and so on. And it was all very wholesome and it seemed to go okay. Uh, until later on, I looked at the tape and it turned out that Santa had a large rip in his pants. <laughs> exactly where Santa should never, ever, ever have a rip in his pants. Now, nobody said anything, but I was not asked back to be Santa the next year. Oh, wow. Yeah, that is, that is a spectacular Santa fail. I have to say that is fantastic. It's, it wasn't my finest hour, Sasha, I've got to say. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but it's given all of us a big giggle. So, you know, it was worth <laughs> I'm, it for I'm the glad story. because I nearly died of shame, quite frankly. But yeah, okay. <laughs> all right. Tell everyone where they can find out more about you um, and yeah. anything else that you would like to add. Okay. So, if anyone's got any questions about Kindle Trends or about the stuff that we've discussed today, uh, you can just email me at nat at kindletrends.com. I'm more than happy to talk about research and data analysis. I talk to every single Kindle Trends subscriber on a pretty regular basis. It's not that big a service, right? Uh, and I rely on subscribers a great deal to give me feedback about what's uh, valuable for them, what's actionable, because I'm always sort of tuning and refining the newsletter to make it as useful as possible for people. Other than that, um, I'll pop some links in the show notes, if that's okay with you, Sasha, that mm -hmm. will walk people through this kind of research approach because I know we've covered a heck of a lot and I'd like people to be able to go away and kind of ruminate on it a little bit and I've got some training videos explaining how to do this and how to use the information in a newsletter to help you um, yeah and that's about and, it really and just to add um we haven't pinned down the specific details but if you are in the rebel author facebook group um then i am going to be inviting that in to do a live facebook session where um we'll actually show you the um the air table like the data thing um look at me with all my special words it's late at night now um and uh yeah and the newsletter and how to actually look at the data and and get the most out of it so you'll be able to see it live in action as well um so if you are not in the rebel facebook group then make sure you dive in there so that you can um view this um magnificent beast live um and in person so to speak um yeah so you i are will... talking about the newsletter not me aren't you? yeah <laughs> yeah yeah i am <laughs> um all right Very well confident. fantastic thank you. thank you so much for your time today awesome got up and uh, thank you, of course, to all of the show's patrons. If you would like to get early access to all of the episodes, then you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash Sasha Black. And of course, thank you to everybody listening. I'm Sasha Black. You are listening to Nat from Kindle Trends. And this was the Rebel Author Podcast.
Join me next week when I will be talking to Corey and Wallace from Formatted Books and they very kindly uh, reformatted the hardback uh, of Keepers for me and uh, I've seen the digital stuff and it's stunning but hopefully by next week I will have the physical copy in my hands and so I'll be able to update you on my experience with that. Uh, But we're going to be diving into the world of book formatting next week so join us or join me (laughs) then for that. Don't forget to tune in and subscribe on your podcatcher and when you have a moment please leave a review.